So for the last little while, we've been uh, working through the Gospel of Matthew and before that through key covenantal moments uh, throughout the Old Testament. And we've been talking a lot about Jesus as God's great king. God's great king who's brought God's great kingdom. Jesus as the Messiah. We've been talking some about what that means. And we've been talking a lot about, especially in the last few weeks, about um, what this looks like, what kingdom looks like when it touches down on earth. We see people are healed and people are redeemed and restored. People are reconciled, not only to each other, but also to God. Well, this morning is Transfiguration Sunday, which is a big word you don't have to worry about, but it's talking about this story when Jesus went up onto the mountain and his face shone like the sun. And God spoke words over him, this is, or you are my son, and you I'm so pleased. And then he says, listen to him. And so this moment is as, as a hinge point or a doorway out of a season where we've been learning about who Jesus is. A season when the church throughout the world has been talking about the amazing things that God has done. The amazing things that Jesus has done in his ministry. And now we move out of that season into a season of discipleship, preparing for the cross. Preparing for Easter. So we've been working through these things, and it's sort of all coming together at this moment here. We have to put together these two things, this idea of king and cross. When king and cross collide what that looks like. Now I know uh, many of you have been Christians for a long time. And we've had 2,000 years of of brothers and sisters who have gone before us to help us say this thing, to say crucified Messiah and not blink an eye. To say things like sacrifice and Savior in the same sentence and to have it not take our breath away. And maybe part of it is too because we have the benefit of the New Testament and we've understood who Jesus is and, and, and maybe we're less adept in the Old Testament understanding everything that what it meant to be Messiah and what people were expecting when Jesus came. They started using terms like Son of Man to describe himself. But there's still this amazing thing. Even if without that sort of background, this amazing leap that we have to make from talking about Jesus and all the amazing things he did in his life, and then making the jump from there to the cross, to King crucified. Has anybody ever asked that question? How do we get from all the amazing things that Jesus was doing in Galilee to Jerusalem and a cross, to execution? Have you ever wondered, like, does anybody ever ask this question, you know, is, was the cross uh, tragedy or triumph? Was the cross on purpose? Was it part of God's plan? Was it necessary? Maybe some of you who have been Christians for a while, maybe you still wrestle with this question. Maybe some of you who are new this morning, or this is your first time in a while, this is a big question for you. Why a cross? You know, if God is God, why a cross? It's a great question. And Paul, even one of the first Christians, was wrestling with it in a church, in a church uh, in, in, a, in a town in, in Greece called Corinth. He's saying to them that the gospelness is foolishness to those who are perishing. He said, we preach Christ crucified or Messiah crucified. And it's a stumbling block to Jewish people. Because when they say Messiah, when they hear Messiah, the first thing they don't think about is Jesus dying on a cross. And it's foolishness to the Greeks. Because in Greek philosophy, 
uh, the heroes won the day. They didn't die on crosses. They led captives into the city as conquerors. And so this question of how do we put king and cross together, it's been one that, that our brothers and sisters have worked on for centuries before us. So let's look at this passage. If you would, if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 17. I also have it here. It's this white sheet. If you want to read along there. So it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There, was trans- there he was, transfigured before, him, before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. This is an amazing part of the gospel. Jesus is up on this mountain. And we watch as God begins to put together these two categories, these two seemingly polar opposites of king and cross, of savior and sacrifice. God, it's his idea to do this, how he's always intended. But let's talk about something about this, this story about Jesus up on this mountain. It actually begins a bit earlier. For those of you who know about Matthew, one of Jesus' followers wrote a thing called the Gospel. And he's telling the story about Jesus, and actually this is happening in Caesarea Philippi. This is a city that's on the northern edge of, of Israel. It's about as far away as you can get and still be inside Israel. You know, the Messiah is not working in Jerusalem right now. He actually spends a lot of his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles, in the northern part in this city of, of Caesarea Philippi, where there are actually other temples. Temples to the god Pan, a Roman god. Temple even to Caesar. And it's among these other temples, in Caesarea Philippi, uh, it's a city that's in, in Israel, but not really in Israel or a, a Jewish city at all. Lots of Gentiles there, lots of different influences. And it's here that Jesus says to them, who are people saying that I am? And the disciples respond with, with answers, like, well, people are saying that you are Elijah. Some are even saying you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus, I mean, in the Gospels, this is one of the rare times where Peter gets it right. 
Jesus pats him on the back and he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, by humans, by people, but by my Father in heaven. He pats him on the back and he says, uh, On this rock, on this rock, and his name Peter means, or is the Greek word for Petros, for rock. On this rock I will build a church. He talks about giving him keys to the kingdom and, and how what Peter binds will be bound, what he looses will be loosed. Peter gets it right here. And then Jesus starts talking to them about what it means to be a Messiah. Jesus starts putting together king and cross. He says the Son of Man must suffer many things. By the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he must be killed and raised again on the third day. And Peter loses it. He says, Lord, may it never be. May it never be. May it never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Man, do you see how far the, the contrast is? One moment, Jesus is patting me on the back. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And the next thing he's saying is, get behind me, Satan. Because you have in mind the things of men, not the things of God. And it's helpful for us to understand that in Jesus' time, the people around him, his fellow countrymen, thought when Messiah would come that he would conquer the world. That he'd be God's great king who came from, from the house of David. He would bring religious revival, renewal to, to the people of God. And that he would, he would destroy the nations and all the nations would, would follow God. But they imagined it something more like, like Caesar would do. Like a great military general not the way that God had planned it. Not the way that God was doing it. Through a servant. Through a Savior who would save by sacrifice. So six days later, Jesus leads them up onto the mountain like we were reading just now. He leads them up onto a mountain. And I can't help but to think the last time that Jesus was up on a mountain and we were talking about kings and kingdoms. It was when Jesus was in the desert and Satan took him to the highest mountain and said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just worship me. And Jesus, he quoted the Old Testament to him. Deuteronomy said, worship the, God, worship the Lord your God alone. And Satan fled. And now here Jesus is on top of the mountain again, his face showing like the sun. And God speaking over him faithfully, this is my son whom I love. In him I am so pleased. That's the part I want to focus on this morning. I mean, there's tons of stuff happening in this passage. And we could, if you guys want to, we could stay for hours. Anybody? I want to focus just one thing this morning. This part where God speaks, this, this shining cloud envelops them, covers them. And they hear this voice from heaven saying, This is my Son, whom I love. In Him I am so pleased. Does anybody remember hearing that somewhere else in the Gospel? John the Baptist, right, when Jesus is baptized. Right. When Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water. He comes up out of the water and God's voice speaks again from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love and him I am so pleased. I preached on that just a few weeks ago. Does everybody remember that sermon still? <laughs> but the thing is, when God is speaking, he's quoting. Is there something wrong? Buds? 
How's that? Oh, I'm only going to be able to talk half my sermon now. I only got one hand to move. <laughs> Some of you are thinking like, whew, good. <laughs> but I want to focus on this part where Jesus is, where we hear the voice of God saying, this is my son whom I love. In him I am so pleased. And uh, we, we recognize that from when Jesus was baptized. That's actually God quoting scripture. The first part, this is my son is a quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm that the people of God sang or recited when a new king was crowned. When a new king was crowned, they would say this, and there's this part where it says, when God's speaking, he says, today I have installed my king, or I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will declare the, the, uh, proclaim the declare of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your, your possession, the ends of the earth your inheritance. That God is, is speaking about his great king. There's this passage about this amazing king that God has, has established and has coronated. But then there's also this part that says, You are my son, my beloved, and you I'm so pleased. That's actually quoting a different part of the Bible. That's quoting a, a passage from Isaiah. When Isaiah remembered God speaking to him, and in the, the, the phrase goes like this, he says, this is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. It comes from Isaiah 42. My chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out. He will not raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not stuff out. In faithfulness, this is the key part, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not be discouraged or falter until he establishes justice on earth. It's this amazing quote of how God is working through uh, his servant. God is at work in, in Christ in ways that it's hard for us to understand. That, that Jesus is God's servant. In Isaiah 42, it goes on to say that, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, and I will keep you, and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles, to give sight to the eyes that are blind to set free captives, and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. It's this amazing story about God's servant. Now, it's interesting because this is the first servant song. There's actually five servant songs, like he's talking about God's servant, throughout the, the prophecies of Isaiah. You might remember this other one that's from Isaiah 61. It said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I remember Jesus saying that exact same thing about himself when he's in Capernaum. But there's also another servant song that many of you recognize. If you, in your bulletins, if you want to pull out this paper, if you want to turn to your Bible, uh, to Isaiah 52, 13. I put this in your bulletin just this morning so you guys could read along with it. It's a little bit of reading, but it's so important. Listen for things that you hear or connections you see with Jesus. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, 
Yeah. I missed 13. That's a good part, too. We'll start in 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For though they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before, them like, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace was upon him, and by his wounds we have been healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He will see his offering and prolong his days. And, he, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of light and be satisfied. By this knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I have given him a portion among the great. He will provide the spoils. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Anybody hearing themes that you recognize from Jesus on the cross? There, making connections with this servant that Isaiah spoke about hundreds of years before Jesus. That Jesus is this servant of God. That it's actually God's idea to put together the ideas of king like we heard in Psalm 2. And the idea of servant. Servant who will sacrifice everything for the sake of God's people. It's God's idea to put them together. You see, it's because of this, because God is holy. I know that's uh, kind of a, an awkward thing. Maybe like holiness is, is something that we don't talk about much. Or, but holiness is God's, this reality that God is different from us. He's pure and good. He is just and merciful. And try as we might, we are not holy. I hate to break it to some of you. <laughs> we are not holy. We do things all the time in our lives that, that would just go contrary to who God is. And so we think, you know, sometimes people ask, you know, why did, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Why can't God just forgive? Why can't God just get over it? Because God is holy. Because God is just. And it's not just to just, to just smile and say, oh, it's, I'm sure you didn't mean it. It's not justice. And we have a God who is holy and just. But we also have a God who loves you like crazy. And he had to do something about it. In the beginning, in, in Genesis, when God created and humanity rebelled against God, 
everything went wrong and God has been at work ever since making it right. But he couldn't just say, oh, you know what, all those laws, all the way that I've designed for you to live well, if you don't follow them, that's okay, don't worry about it. That's not, that's not justice. And I'd say in a, in a surprising way, that's not even that merciful. But the fact that God came, that God sent his son, that he would die in our place, that he would be the one who would die, the, the sins that we have, the things that we've done wrong, the ways we've hurt each other, the ways that we've rebelled against God, that Jesus would take all of that. And you say, well, how does Jesus dying do any of that? Because a part of that, too, is how we understand the word king. Now, we kind of have a glimpse of this when, when Stephen Harper goes to another country. He represents Canada. He represents each of us. Take that example and multiply that by about a hundred In the ancient world, a king was the embodiment of his people. Where the king was, that's where the kingdom was. That's where the people were represented. And so you have Jesus finally and faithfully doing what God had always intended Israel to do, to draw people to God. God gave him this law at Sinai as a way to live, as a way to relate to God, in a way that would bring people to God. And they didn't do it. Now, this is no slam on Israel because even if God would have chosen Canada, we wouldn't have been able to do it. We need God's help. We need God's grace and his mercy in our lives. We need God to do this in us. And Jesus finally gathered together as as the king, as the representative of the people, finally and faithfully did what God always intended God's people to do. God, Jesus made this covenant and started bringing people into the people of God, the nations in. It's amazing to think about what God has done here in Jesus. That he has brought together these two categories of king and servant, brought them together on the cross for our sake. Do you see how God's doing this? Through Jesus as a servant, as his great king, bringing it together to handle it on the cross. Actually gathering sin all in one place to deal with it. Okay, so some of you are saying, okay, Jason, I I think I hear what you're saying theologically. But what does this mean for our lives? How does this matter to us right now? Well, first thing that matters is that we've been reconciled to our Father in heaven. Jesus dying on the cross reconciled us. People, us Gentiles, people who didn't have any part in the people of God, because of Jesus, we have a part now. We are made the people of God through our faith in Jesus. Because Jesus on, his, on the cross, he cut a new covenant. Through his blood, Jesus cut a new covenant that includes us in the people of God. That's why at the Lord's Supper, when he was speaking with his disciples, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it, remembering me. We've been brought into the people of God. We've been made right with God through Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross. He's the one who takes our place, who stands in our place, and begins to restore all of creation back to God, bringing his kingdom, this moment on the cross, king and cross together. We've been reconciled. We've been made right with God. We've been given a new life. We've been transformed the moment we begin believing into Jesus. We've been made a new creation. We've been made more human. 
As we begin to follow Jesus, we become more humble, more gracious, more forgiving, blessing those who curse us, helping those who no one else would even give the time of day. God makes us more human as we follow Jesus. That's the first thing, how it matters to us today in our lives. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we are made right with God. No matter what has happened to us, no matter what we've done, Jesus has made us right with God on the cross. So that's the first thing. We've been reconciled. The second thing is this. Jesus called us to follow him. I didn't mention this, but when Peter was, when he, when Peter said, you know, Jesus, may it never be. Never go to Jerusalem. You're the, you're the Messiah. We want you to be king. We want to ride your coattails all the way to the top. Jesus began talking with him. He said, whoever wants to follow me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever tries to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake, and this is in Jesus, for Jesus' sake, will find it. Well, I don't know about you, but it doesn't get much more stark than that, much more challenging than that. Whoever tries to save their life is going to lose it. Whoever loses their life for Jesus' sake will find it. And that's hard. I mean, I know I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to have all this figured out, but I can tell you it is hard. And I see many of you who've been Christians longer than I've been alive. And I see how you wrestle with it. How we keep putting down our life, setting down our things so that we can follow Jesus, that we can take up our cross and follow him. It matters to us as we set down all of these things that, we, that are so important to us so that we can follow Christ faithfully. I can't help it, but I'm thinking even about hockey games at four in the morning. <laughs> set those down so we can follow Jesus. I see this point is that how it matters for our life right now is that Jesus has reconciled us on the cross. We've been reconciled to our Father in heaven. But not only that, Jesus said, follow me. Do it the way that I do it. Be my disciple. Follow. So some of you are thinking, okay, I see kind of big picture. I'm reconciled to God. Some of you are thinking, thanks for reminding me. Some of you are thinking, wow, it's new. I've never heard that before. I want to encourage you. God wants a relationship with you. He wants to be right with you. He wants you to know him and know how deeply, you, how deeply he loves you. But some of you think, okay, so what does this look like? What, what can I do this week? How can I begin practicing this? How can I begin practicing this idea of holding kingdom and cross together? Well, there's lots of ways, but I just have one suggestion this week. This week, make a sacrifice for someone else. No response. <laughs> Nobody's saying like, oh no. <laughs> Make a sacrifice for someone else. Now the thing is, I look out at you and I know many of you, you are gifted this way. You've been on this road following Jesus for a long time and sacrifice comes pretty easy for you. For some of us, it's a little bit harder. We still have this idea that life is all about me. That uh, what I've got to do, my, my job or my hobbies, that's the most important thing. And so it's harder. But I want to encourage you to take a small step. This week, make a sacrifice for someone else. 
You know, maybe that small step for those of us who struggle with this, maybe that small step is taking, uh, sacrificing for someone that you love. I'm one of those guys on the small step part of it. This week, as I was thinking about this sermon, actually yesterday, uh, I was uh, doing some work around our house. And, you know, in my mind, I've got a checklist, stuff I'm working on. And I'm right in the middle of it. And Corbin says, Dad, can you help me build my playset?" And my first thought is, no. <laughs> I've got work to do. And then I'm thinking about this sermon, and I'm thinking about sacrificing for his sake. And it only, you know, it was like 15, 20 minutes, like nothing in the grand scheme of things. And so I sat down and I helped him build his playset. And I don't think he even said thank you. He just had fun playing with it. But it's that sacrifice that we're talking about. For those of us who struggle with it, take that first step, maybe someone that we love. For those of you who've been doing it for a while, maybe sacrificing for someone else comes a bit easier. I'm asking you maybe to think about bigger picture. Maybe sacrifice for someone you don't love. Maybe sacrificing yourself for someone you don't really even like. Maybe sacrificing yourself for, or sacrificing something of yourself for someone you don't even know. And some of you are thinking, okay, I'm interested, Jason, but what do you mean by sacrifice? You know, I'd say first pray, however God is encouraging you to sacrifice something. Pray and ask God for his direction on that. You can't go wrong with that. But I'd also offer maybe two things. One is sacrifice time. Time is one that is a, is a tight commodity for most of you, for most of us. I know how busy many of you are. The things you've got planned, the projects you're working on, the hobbies, kids, uh, parents that you're looking after. I know how tight time is. So that's a big one. Sacrifice some time for someone. The other is stuff. Sacrifice stuff for someone. Now I know I'm, this, is close, this is close to the bone, isn't it? Time and stuff. like Two of our most important commodities that we have in this world. But sacrifice stuff. You know, I was thinking about it earlier this week about, you know, what would happen if we sacrificed, maybe for those of you who like lattes or something like that, I'm not picking on you, but if you just said, you know, this week I'm not going to have a latte. I'm going to use that money to bless the child I'm sponsoring or to bless a child that I would like to sponsor. Or what about this, about maybe for those of you who, who don't drink lattes or something like that, but maybe instead of grocery shopping this week, maybe saying, you know, one or two nights this week we're going to eat beans and rice, which is what, you know, our brothers and sisters in Latin America eat like all day long, <laughs> seven days a week. We're going to eat beans and rice a couple times so we have some extra money so that we can donate those funds to, to, the, um, to our daily bread, the food ministry here in Nelson. Sacrificing our stuff for the sake of others. Imagine what this begins to look like. Because this stuff isn't normal for us. I can tell you, like, I love my kids. But they don't just grow up saying, you know, God, it's just, or, Jason, or Dad, it's just in me. How can I sacrifice more? No, for those of you who know kids, it's usually like, how can I get more for me? Sacrifice doesn't come easy. And so I'm saying, because followers of Jesus, we practice it. We practice it with, with small steps, maybe. Maybe for those of you who've been practicing for a while, you're able to take bigger steps and to sacrifice for people that you don't know or that you don't even like. But you still make sacrifice for them. 
Imagine what this begins to look like in our families, in marriages, in this church, in this community as we're sacrificing things for people and they start to pick up on it. They realize that we help them and it actually, it costs us something. And we don't make a big deal about it. I mean, that would totally ruin it. But they begin to put the things together. That we care about them in ways even above ourselves. We started this morning talking about how kingdom and cross collide. And we're looking at it through the transfiguration when Jesus is on the mountain and his face shines like the sun. And God says, this is my son whom I love and him I'm so pleased. Listen to him. And we see how God is taking together at the same time Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 and smashing them together. That we see that sacrifice and Savior in God's world, they do go together. And it's exactly how God desired to bring, to restore creation back to him. We start thinking about what this means for us in terms of the fact that we've been reconciled to God. But also we've been called to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And what this looks like maybe for this week is to make one sacrifice for someone. I just, I'm surprised at how, we, how God has done this, how God has brought kingdom and cross together and how it's changed everything. Amen.